Alright, in this General Biology 1 lecture, we're going to be looking at the chemistry that we need to understand to be able to really discuss biology. And I know that you may be thinking, hang on, I didn't sign up for chemistry. Um, I know, I get it, trust me, I get it. Um, but hear me out, okay? So you do need a foundational, fundamental understanding of chemistry in order to really comprehend biology and the bigger um, biological concepts. Because cells, organisms, we're all made, it's all made out of chemicals and molecules, and those chemicals and molecules interact, and they interact in predictable ways, which are predicted by the science of chemistry and the science of physics. We're not going to really get into the physics right now. We're going to talk about the chemistry. Um, so we're going to start off with the basics. Um, and like that old joke goes, never trust an atom. They make up everything, right? Okay. So an atom is where we're going to start, and it is the fundamental unit of matter. Matter being anything that occupies space and has mass. So I tend to think of matter as the stuff of the universe. Um, elements are unique forms of matter. Unique in that they have specific properties or characteristics that they maintain. Um, and they cannot be broken down into smaller substances and still be what they are. Okay, so an atom, another definition for an atom, is that it is the smallest unit of an element that retains the properties of that element. All right, um, there are four elements that are common in life. There are more than that, but there are four in common to life. Those are oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, and nitrogen. All right, um, so each one of those would represent an atom of an element. All right, those are each elements. Their atom is the smallest unit. I tend to think of element and atom sort of interchangeably, okay? So let's talk about the structure of an atom, the anatomy of an atom, if you will. All right, so atoms consist of a nucleus in the center surrounded by electron clouds or orbitals. Um, there are three subatomic particles that we're going to worry about right now. Those are protons, neutrons, and electrons. They are what make up atoms. Okay, so subatomic, less than an atom. All right. So protons are positive, charged, P for positive. Neutrons are neutral in charge. Protons and neutrons are found in the nucleus. Electrons have a negative charge and they orbit around the nucleus. All right, so if you look at a periodic table and it has you know, all the elements listed there, um, those are described sort of in their neutral state, okay? They don't, those atoms in the periodic table in their elemental state, they do not have an overall charge. All right, they're neutral. Um, and they're neutral because the number of protons is equal to the number of electrons. So neutrons are neutral. They don't have a say in the charge. Protons positive, electrons negative. 
they have to balance each other out. All right. Um, now, protons and neutrons, they're larger, they have more mass than electrons, a lot more. Um, so much more so that we don't even worry about electrons when we're calculating the mass of an atom. All right. Um, so the thing is, though, protons and neutrons have roughly equal masses. Um, they are one atomic mass unit each or one Dalton. Dalton is probably the more useful of those units in biology. Um, when we start talking about proteins and the size or mass of a protein, we're going to measure it in Daltons or kilodaltons. Um, now, quick side note, I'm saying Dalton, D-A-L-T-O-N, not dolphin, okay? Um, when I was in grad school, there was a guy in my class in my year. We'd been in, in school for, I don't know, maybe a few months by then. And we had to give a presentation, and he kept saying, kill a dolphin. And we're like, dude, it's not dolphin, it's Dalton. So um, don't, don't make that mistake. Um, so protons and neutrons each weigh about one Dalton. Okay, electrons have negligible mass, like they don't even count in the scheme of this. So if you will, we're going to blow this up hugely. Um, if you were tasked with weighing a system that you had, say, six pink bowling balls, six purple bowling balls, and six teeny tiny little cotton balls. Are you really going to worry about those little cotton balls that much? Nah. Okay, so we don't even really worry about the electrons. So in that analogy, the electrons are the cotton balls. Um, so let's talk a little bit about how we know what makes a certain atom be that atom or be that element. All right? So if you look at the periodic table, you'll see all these little boxes, right? I'm gonna pick on carbon because we like carbon and we're gonna come back to carbon. So um, let's pick on carbon. So in that little box, there's a C. A C stands for carbon. Um, there's a number six. Usually it's somewhere up above, maybe up above and to the left. Um, and down below, there's a 12, 12.011. For our purposes right now, we're not going to worry about that 12.011. We're just going to call it 12, okay? Um, the fraction is the result of there being various isotopes. We'll talk about those later. Okay, so that 6 up top, that would be the atomic number, okay? The definition of the atomic number is the number of protons in that atom, okay? So... Typically, your proton number is not going to change. Um, there are a few exceptions to that, but in a normal happy scenario, your um, protons, your atomic number doesn't change. The element you are working with stays the element you're working with, as determin determined by the number of protons. Okay? Now, remember I said that... Atoms are neutral in charge. 
protons are positive, so that atomic number also tells you the number of electrons that you have. Okay, so for carbon, we've got six protons, six positives. We've got to have six negatives to equal zero, right? So we've got six electrons. Okay, so that bottom number, that 12, is atomic mass number. Um, so if each proton and neutron weighs one, and you've got six protons, how are you going to figure out your neutrons? You're going to take that atomic mass number and subtract your atomic number from it. So you also know that you have six neutrons in the nucleus of that carbon atom. All right? So the things that can change about an atom is actually the number of neutrons. Um, that can change the atomic mass number. Um, and when that happens, we call it an isotope. Okay, so when the mass changes, um, you may have heard of carbon-14. That's because there's extra neutrons. Um, so that's an isotope. They can be radioisotopes where they're emitting particles. Um, that's where you can get a change in the proton number. But again, that's under... That, that atom is under duress, okay? It's not a happy camper. Um, but in normal, normal chemical reactions, your protons should not be changing. The other thing that can change, and we're going to kind of talk about this a lot, is the number of electrons. All right, that's how we get ions and charges on atoms. All right, so let's talk about electrons. So as I already said, they're teeny tiny um, they are negatively charged, and they will orbit around the nucleus. Now, there is structure in how they orbit. So what happens is that um, they kind of stack up in layers, if you will. The innermost layer, the one closest to the nucleus, can hold a maximum of two electrons. All right, moving out from there, they can hold eight electrons. Um, and they have to fill up the layer before they can move to the next layer, all right? Um, they all want to have that outer one full. Um, since the next orbitals out hold eight electrons, we call that the octet rule. Um, now, the outermost layer, which may or may not be full, we call the valence shell. Um, and that determines the reactivity and the bonding ability of that atom. All right, so if you look again at your periodic table, um, the column all the way to the right, that's called our noble gases. And they're, they're very stable, they're, they're inert, they're not gonna react. And they have a perfectly filled valence shell, okay? Um, all of the other atoms want to look like the noble gases. They want to look like nobility, right? Everybody wants to look like nobility. Um, FYI, I do tend to kind of um, give atoms and elements and chemicals personality they don't necessarily have personality in and of themselves, but it helps me to think about it. Um, so they are a little bit 
sometimes they get grumpy or super happy or <laughs> little funny things like that. So they don't really have personality, um, but it, it just makes it work in, in my head. Okay, so back to this. Everybody wants to look like the noble gases, and the elements, the atoms, will work together to get there. Okay, and that's how we get chemical bonds. There's a couple of different types, and we're going to talk about them. Um, one is covalent. So covalent is a sharing of electrons in the valence shell. Okay, so they'll share, and now that outer orbital is covering all that nuclei and everything underneath. So it's a shared valence shell electrons. The other kind is an ionic bond. This is an interaction between ions. So remember, an ion is an atom that gained or lost an electron so that it has a charge. Then opposites attract, and they kind of stick together. All right? So regardless of um, whether we're talking about covalent or ionic, chemical reactions have reactants, the things that are going to work together some which of way, and it yields products. That yield is usually denoted by an arrow. That arrow can also just kind of indicate the chemical reaction happening here. Okay? The product is what we get out at the end. Um, if it's a solid arrow with one point going one direction, that's a one-way reaction, and it's considered irreversible. Okay? Sometimes you have an arrow that's like half of an arrow going way, one way and the other half going the other way. Sometimes it's written as just a line with the arrows on both, both ends. Um, that's a back and forth sort of reaction. Um, and somewhere along in there, there will be an equilibrium between the reactants and the products. Okay? All right. So ions will, as I said, they'll give up or they'll gain an electron with the goal of looking like a noble gas. But that giving up or receiving an electron produces a charge on the atom. Okay, so if it gives up an electron, so we lose a minus, we lose a negative, but we still got all of our positives, it becomes a positively charged ion. Okay, and we call that a cation. Um, the way I remember that, I like cats. I'm a cat person, so cats are positive. Okay. Um, now, on the other side, if you gain an electron, so you bring on an extra minus, you bring on an extra negative, and now you have a negatively charged ion, that's called an anion. Okay. Alright, so I always pick on sodium chloride when I'm teaching ionic bonding because that's table salt. We're familiar with it. It's not scary. Um, it's just a little salty. Okay. <laughs> Alright, so if you look at your periodic table, sodium has an atomic number of 11. That means it has 11 electrons, right? Like practically 11 electrons. The Definition of atomic number is the number of protons, but it also tells us electrons. Um, 
So the noble gas that it wants to look like is neon. Okay, neon has 10. So I should probably tell you at this point that atoms are lazy. Okay, they're going to take the path of least resistance to look like that noble gas. All right, so it's a whole lot easier for sodium to kick out one electron than it is to take on a whole bunch to look like argon. Okay? All right, so on the other hand, chloride has 17 electrons, and it really wants to have 18. So sodium wants to get rid of one. Chloride wants an extra one. So they transfer that electron between them. So sodium gets a positive charge, chloride gets a negative charge, and opposites attract. So that's how we get an ionic bond. Okay? Now, covalent bonding, again, is the sharing of the electrons in the valent shell. But what can happen there is that you don't always get an even distribution of that charge of those electrons. Um, some atoms have higher electronegativity than others, meaning that they have a, a tendency to kind of hug the electrons, okay? They have a tendency to attract the electrons in that valence shell to be around them more than the other atoms in that compound, in that molecule. A prime example of this is water. So water is H2O, there are two hydrogens, two itty bitty little hydrogens, and one oxygen. So hydrogen, we haven't really talked about hydrogen too much yet, but it's a little bit different. Okay, so it doesn't have any neutrons. A hydrogen atom is literally just one proton and one electron. Um, so hydrogen has actually a very limited, it can only form one bond. One little hydrogen can only form one bond. Um, so it's, it's a tiny little atom compared to oxygen. So oxygen has an atomic mass of around 16 and the atomic number of 8. So oxygen has 8 protons, 8 neutrons, and 8 electrons. Okay? Um, so... It's a much bigger atom, and it tends to hog the electrons. Um, so that means there's kind of a negative-ishness to the oxygen. That is not a technical term, by the way. Um, it would be called a slight negative, but I like the idea of it being negative-ishness. It's kind of sort of there. It's not a really firm negative, but it's... It's a little bit negative, okay? And what happens is those two hydrogens, they get a slight positive. So a positive-ishness on the hydrogens. That uneven charge distribution is called polarity. And that's actually a pretty important phenomenon, okay? So one of the things that this allows is another type of chemical bonding called hydrogen bonding. Now, hydrogen bonding is a really weak association between that positive-ishness on the hydrogens and a negative-ishness in water on the oxygen. Okay? There are other things that do hydrogen bonding as well. 
water is one of the best ones to teach it with. Okay? So actually, now we're going to talk a lot about water. Um, so because of that polarity and that hydrogen bonding, water actually um, has quite a few interesting properties, unique properties that make it extremely important for life, or at least life as we know it. Um, one thing that happens, have you ever noticed that ice cubes float? We all know water expands as it freezes. That's why you have to be careful about what you put in the freezer. Um, the reason it's doing that is because of the hydrogen bonding. So what usually happens when things get cold is that molecules slow down. They slow down and they start associating with each other. Um, they get closer and closer and closer together. Water does the same thing up to a point. Once it hits that point, usually around four degrees Celsius, um, the hydrogen bonds orient themselves in such a way that they literally hold the water molecules apart from each other. So it builds in space. Um, and that's why water expands and why it floats. It's less dense than liquid water at four degrees. Um, because of the rigidity and the structure of that hydrogen bonding. Um, on the flip side, as temperature rises, most molecules start spreading out and moving faster. Um, in water, the hydrogen bonds keep the water molecules close together. So what happens is because of this hydrogen bonding keeping the water molecules together more, um, water has one of the highest specific heat capacities of any liquid. Um, what that means is it takes a lot of heat to increase the temperature of one gram of water by one degree Celsius. Okay? One way to think of this, every, everything has a um, specific heat capacity. It's like there's like tables of them in, in big chemistry books of like the specific heat of such and such is da da da. Okay. But practically what we can do to think about that. Um, if you had a gram of water and you had a gram of copper. Okay. And you were heating those over an equivalent heat source. So it's putting out the same amount of heat. All right. Which one's going to get hotter faster? That copper, right? It has a lower heat, specific heat, okay? So it takes more to heat water than it does to heat um, copper or sand or, you know, other things. Um, similarly, there is a property known as the heat of vaporization. And that's the amount of energy required to change one gram of a substance into a gas. Um, for water, that is also very high. It takes a lot of heat to change one gram of water into completely into a gas. Um, so what happens is at the surface, especially of water, um, the hydrogen bonding is keeping all those little molecules together. They don't want to let go. So you have to heat it up enough to break all the hydrogen bonds to get vaporization. Okay? Um, 
Okay, so those are some interesting um, properties of water. Um, now we're going to talk a little bit about some more, like, a little bit more useful properties of water. Okay, so we've already talked about how water molecules like to stick together. They like to stick to each other. There's a couple of terms that we need to know about that. So when water molecules are sticking to other water molecules, we call it cohesion. And that gives us the idea of surface tension. Okay? Um, so at the water, at the water surface, especially, those water molecules stick together and they can do so tight enough that things can actually, like, like water striders, those little bugs, they can actually use the surface tension to walk across the water. Um, now, if water is sticking to other things, other molecules, it's called adhesion. Um, so that's the attraction between water and other things, adhesion. So adhesion versus cohesion, very similar ideas, um, but two separate terms. Um, so one of the things that happens if water is sticking to other things, since water is polar and it has that positive-ishness and that negative-ishness going on, um, other things that are polar, as well as ions, are going to be attracted by water and to water. Okay? Um, that results in a hydrophilic scenario. Now, nonpolar things tend to not be attracted to water. Um, they tend to repel water. We call that hydrophobic. Okay? Um, so what happens, though, when you have things dissolving into water, um, especially with things like salts, those salts, like sodium chloride, when you put sodium chloride in water, it falls apart. Okay, so little sodiums go over here and little chlorides go over there. Um, that's called dissociation. They dissociate. And once they've dissociated, the water molecules will surround those ions and create what's called a sphere of hydration or a hydration shell around the ions. And it will keep the ions from going back together very easily. Okay? Um, now, other things that dissociate are acids and bases. So, like, a lot of things will dissociate. Um, so, we're going to talk about acids and bases and pH and buffers. Okay? So, pH indicates the acidity or basicity of a solution. Now, solutions are what happens when you have a solvent, like water, and a solute mixed together. So that salt dissociating in the water that we were just talking about, that would be a salt water solution. Okay? Um, now, water itself can dissociate a little bit. And when it does, it breaks into a free hydrogen ion and a hydroxide, or OH-. So we do have to write the charges next to the ions. So hydrogen, a little H and a plus. The hydroxide is an OH with a minus. Now, when water dissociates, um, remember it's H2O, 
So when it falls apart and you get the hydrogen, the H plus, and the OH minus, it does that equally. So you get just as many hydrogen ions as you do hydroxide ions. That's why water is neutral. Okay? So pH is the measure of the concentration of the hydrogen ion. And it's actually a negative log of the concentration of the hydrogen ion. We're not going to worry about that. Um, but that's why water at 7 is neutral, pH of 7. Okay? Now, the lower the pH, because it's a negative log, means that there is higher hydrogen concentration. Okay, there's a higher concentration of hydrogen ions when there's lower pH, and that is acidic. Okay, the higher the pH, that means the lower the concentration of hydrogen ions, and that is basic. So the way I remember that, since it's pH is a scale of around zero, a little bit above zero, um, to 14, the way I remember that is bigger is basic. Because if it's bigger than 7, if the number is higher than the neutral, then it's basic. Another word for basic is alkaline. Um, I prefer using the term basic. Okay? So, what is an acid? What is a base? What, what does this mean? Okay? An acid is a substance that is going to increase the concentration of hydrogen ions. Um, an acid is a hydrogen donor. So when, it, when an acid dissociates, it releases its hydrogens. Okay? Strong acid, something like hydrogen chloride, HCl, is going to dissociate completely. Okay? It's going to give up all of its hydrogens. A weak acid is going to dissociate partially. Okay? So it's not going to fall all the way apart. It's going to give up some hydrogens, but not everything it's got. A base is a substance that's going to receive the hydrogen, okay? Um, so what do you think happens if you mix an acid and a base, a strong acid and a strong base? If you mix them together, what do you think you're going to get? Most of the time when I ask somebody that, they say it's going to blow up. It's not going to blow up. Um, you're going to get a salt, and water from that reaction. So think about if you had hydrogen chloride, HCl, that's a strong acid, and sodium hydroxide, that's a strong base. That's sodium Na and hydroxide is OH. When they dissociate, hydrogen chloride breaks into a free hydrogen and a chloride. Sodium hydroxide breaks into a free sodium and a hydroxide. So the hydrogen and the hydroxide are going to join up. That's two H's and an oxygen. That's water. The sodium from sodium hydroxide and the chloride from hydrogen chloride, they're going to join up. That's sodium chloride. That's a table salt. So depending on what your acid is and what your base is, it's going to change your salt. But you will always get a salt and a water. All right. Now buffers. Buffers are substances that can absorb the hydrogen or the hydroxide, okay? They resist pH change. 
Um, they have limits. Different buffers will have different limits of how much you can torture them before they're going to change their pH. Um, but that makes them usable in physiological settings, right? Because inside of our cells, we need to maintain a, a, a stable pH. We don't need our pH going all over the place. That's not a healthy condition for us. So we have to have some means of controlling it. And we control it through buffer systems. All right, so I'm going to leave this one here. Um, I think the next one's going to be, we're going to talk about some carbon stuff, and then we're going to talk about biological molecules. All right, so um, take care.